Nikita, man, it's really good to have you back. Yeah, thank you, man. I'm, I'm glad Dude, to be back. It's been a while. It's been <laughs> almost three years. Can you believe that shit? Whoa. Almost three years really? since you were here. Yeah, it was 2021. Did you, did you research that? Well, I can easily type Overcrest Oil Stain Lab and see exactly when the episode came out. It wasn't too bad. Um, Three and uh, that episode, we went through like kind of like your guys' history and where you came from. And, you know, if anybody wants to hear all that, they can go listen to it. It's it's a good episode. Um, also, happy birthday, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate I'm, you I'm spending your birthday with me. I'm not. <laughs> what is old? Define old. What number is there? Um, well, how old do you think I am? Oh, no, you can't do that. That's rude. <laughs> That's ruder than asking somebody how old they are. Uh, 36. Just turned 36, 36 okay. my brother and I. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's not too bad. Once it once everything starts hurting, then you start paying attention. Yeah. That's when that's when it really starts to hit. You're like, like, man, where did, that, where did that pain come from? It's like, oh, yeah, I fell down like three weeks ago and it hasn't healed. So that's right. Uh, yeah, you've got, you've got that there. to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. So it's been like almost three years and it's been interesting watching um, oil stain lab evolve, right? It's, it's been cool seeing what you guys have done, which is, um, develop a brand I think has been really, really cool. You know, the, the car came out and then I've seen like this, this brand of oil stain lab start to grow and the ethos and the vibe that you guys are kind of creating is, is really, really interesting. Um, what's, what's been going on with you guys? What's new? I saw the top gear thing. That's freaking dope. Who doesn't dream of like collaborating with top gear someday? Yeah. Um, gosh, so much has changed three years ago. It's almost hard to pinpoint where, where half 11, where it was staying love was, uh, like so long ago. Um, yeah, I mean, 23 was, was a crazy year. It was, was it done? Well. Was, was half 11 even done when we last talked? I think it was at like, I don't think it ran. Yeah. It's been that long. Okay. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> 2023 was crazy. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, 23 has definitely been like a year. It's been a crazy year. Cars traveled a lot. I think it's more finished now. Um, it's got the roof on it. So it's like it's kind of, you know, it's emerged from its cocoon and it's become this butterfly, let's say. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's flying around the country and yeah, dri driving across the country. And yeah, so I mean, the, like you said, I think, you know, we're we always had a vision for where the brand would be and what what it could be. Um and we've just sort of slowly developed it. Um, but dude, there's like, you can have a plan and then it just all goes out the window and you see like, yeah, so we've pivoted, we've moved around. Um, we're not, we're not some crazy geniuses. We're just, you know, it's like still very much a, a side project and we're just letting it grow naturally and, you know, with the community and everything. So what was yeah. the, the <laughs> biggest thing that you didn't expect? that's caused you to pivot and change maybe what you were thinking or what you were doing or what it could be. Gosh, I mean, the entire project of half 11 was never supposed to be like anything commercial or, you know, to make a car for other people or anything. And, um, it was just really supposed to be a fun thing for us to tell like a unique story, right? That, that was the genesis of it. And, uh, the whole, everything that's happened with that car and the people have reached out and everything it's yeah, it's pivoted us into a very different direction to where we've sort of moved away from being the design consultancy. I think that's probably what we were talking about three years ago. a lot. Yep. Um, yep. And now we're moving into a, a, a very different area, almost boutique building things, let's say. So yeah, it's, it's, that's been the biggest pivot and the biggest, you know, I think my brother and I never envisioned being, like a small car company, but it may just happen. 
So you have like dudes calling you up. They want like their own. Do they want you to design like a vision of like a new thing or do they want a half 11? Like what are these people asking for when they call you up or DM you or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been a lot of people that just want, want a half 11. Um, and that's when we kind of have to tell them like, Hey, listen, like, trust me, you don't also, it's not for sale (laughs) despite like all the websites that throw it up for sale. It's, it's not for sale. (laughs) What is that? I saw Um, that today. It's like, yeah, you can have this for $600,000 or whatever. I'm like, I didn't know it was for sale. Where's this coming from? Yeah. Yeah. No, we were, we were surprised too when people started sending it to us. Um, because yeah, no one really ever talked to us about those articles or anything. It's like, yeah, there's, I think there's Rob Report. There's all these like big websites and you're like, where did you guys get this from? <laughs> that was all post-SEMA. Um, but uh, yeah, where, where, where's the question? Sorry, I totally spaced. No, that's, that's okay. It's, <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of meandering. It's just like the, the, the growth of the, of the brand and everything. And uh, where, are you guys, where are you guys pivoted from? Um, I think it's interesting that you know, people are wanting you to build cars, you know, and if they, if they want a half 11, I think that they maybe think they want one, but, uh, it's, it's gotta be a pretty violent thing that most people don't understand what driving something like that is like. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, for us, it was like a tribute to the seventies, but it, it took special people to drive that, right? And they were professional drivers, you know, Can-Am racers. Um, I mean, true heroes, right? They were risking their lives every time they went and raced. And, I, you know, I don't think the world's really ready to sell cars like that or to have people that aren't experienced or trained to drive things like that. I think that would open up a huge legal quagmire, first of all. <laughs> um, well, we are giving people giant SUVs that go zero to 60 in two seconds, right? Yeah, but pretty much no matter what, you'll be safe inside the SUV. The people <laughs> outside the SUV True. won't be. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, weight is like the bane of our existence. We just we hate how big and heavy cars are. But that's a that's a side topic that we'd uh, we could discuss for hours. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people don't really understand, yeah, how, like what you said, how extreme it is to drive that thing. And you have to be five foot seven. I mean, it was built for us. Uh, the car's 30, yeah. 38 inches I'm five, tall. five seven. Let's go. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, you'll fit. We'll fly in. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's 38 inches tall, so it's two inches lower than the original GT40 Le Mans racers. You know, it's an inch taller than a 917. I mean, there's no comfort it's not as bad as you think it is. Cause like you can, you know, lope around at like 1500 RPM and be okay. But you know, there's no AC you have to climb in through the window. Basically, you know, it's, it's, uh, you gotta be in the mood to like drive it. It's not something casual, you know? Um, yeah. So, but it's a dream come true for us. You know, it's a, it's, it's the absolute like pinnacle, I think, kind of sacrifice or making sure that the driving experience is special. Like it leaves a memory every time you do it, you know, and that's, that's what we wanted. So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's going to take a special type of person, but I think there's people out there. Well, the majority of people couldn't handle it or they think they want something like that, but they really don't. Maybe they want to have it, but not drive it. You know, they want to, they want to cosplay that they're the person that could <laughs> be in that car. They think they want to be James Hunt. You know, but they 
maybe real. I, I don't know. Being James Hunt would be pretty cool, but like they they think that's what they want, but they really don't. But I think there's people out there that would love to just get something like this or have you design something like this and really use it. I think there's people out there that would. That's yeah. So I mean, the we're working on effectively what would be a production car of that, um, but it's very different. Uh, very very different. Um, the spirit of that, the half 11 will live on, but it'll be a thoroughly modern project or like a thoroughly modern approach. Um, so it'll have like big doors, it'll have air conditioning, it'll have the basic necessities. I think that modern day life has taught people they need, um, you know, and, and, you know, at that at price points at that price point, like there's not, you know, you got to have some illusion of comfort a little bit. A little bit, right? Um, otherwise, right. you just have go to be able to at least get your girlfriend to go out in it once in a while, right? You got to exactly. like she's she's got to be able to tolerate it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the that's the next one. That's what we've been working on for the last I don't know twenty four months or something behind the scenes, and it's been uh, it's been very um, different and and difficult because like with half eleven we were very open with everything, right? And it was like our learning. And, you know, the, the community helped us learn because when we started that project, like had no idea how to weld, no, no idea how to metal shape. Right. And you'd get the meanest comments on Instagram be like, those welds look like absolute, you know, crap. <laughs> and it's like, it's for us, it's good because we have thick skin anyway. So, but it was like, oh, okay, so we need to improve this or we need to do this or we need to find someone who can do this better. Um, so yeah, it was, it was fun learning and sharing. Um, but the new project, we're not sharing with anybody we're doing it more of what we do professionally as car designers which is like keep it secret until it's kind of kind of ready so yeah have you been able to <laughs> utilize your connections in the industry to like move things forward and like reach out to people and you know get things done in the process and the manufacturing uh i mean yes and no i mean i i came from a very like advanced design you know sort of community of of network of people i guess and then my brother he worked a lot on the production side but you know stamping steel is very different than you know boutique car manufacturing and you know carbon fiber and stuff so it's been a big deep dive and obviously we have a lot of connections and it's probably easier than if like you were starting from scratch um but it's still been yeah it's been very difficult to like figure out who to work with the factory supply chains you know, how to not get stuck, how to, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a massive undertaking. <laughs> you got to appreciate the challenge though, right? I mean, it's, it's one thing to build a one-off car, but it's one thing to build something over and over again that is up to yeah, the yeah. same standard that you guys have. Cause you guys have really high standards we can tell. So building something that meets those standards repeatedly has got to be a big challenge. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it was different back in the seventies, right? Like if you were a boutique car builder, like, you know, even a Countach, to be honest, it's like, it's pretty rickety for a production car, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not well thought out. There's some, you know, quality issues and stuff like that. And, you know, it's still my dream car. Like I still want an early Periscopo, but, um, today's standard is just so damn high. You know, every new manufacturer that comes out is just crazy the quality and and you know the materials and the fit and finish and you know a lot of it's because everything's done digitally so you can you know develop it that way um 
And then you have companies like Singer, just like ridiculous quality on the interior and materials. How do you compete with any of these guys? (laughs) It's a big challenge. (laughs) So one of the things that comes up when I talk to people about this car, almost inevitably, (laughs) is the engine, right? It seems to be the most controversial part of the car, at least when I'm talking on discord or instagram or talking to people about it fielding questions like what do you think about the engine how do you feel about that that thing should have a gt1 engine and i'm first of all i'm like where the dude's gonna get a gt1 (laughs) engine right i mean that just doesn't seem reasonable and then you think of like well it should have a porsche engine you know if it's supposed to if the heritage of it is supposed to go all the way back to the 70s and why does it have an ls and like how do you like you must field this on instagram all the time how do you deal with this why did you use an ls how do you you know um kind of like bring the two together with the original concept with the newer LS and all this stuff. Yeah, sure. So yes, it is the most controversial thing. Uh, yes, we've talked about it so many, many times. We, we try to stay away from it, to be honest, um, nowadays. But yeah, I'll give you kind of the quick rundown. I mean, the reason we chose it, um, it's just an incredible engine. It has such a deep, horrible stigma in the U.S., but outside of the U.S., Europe, Asia, Middle East – People love LS engines like it's, you know, they they adore them. It's not. Yeah, there's this weird like American like, oh, it's just a junkyard engine. And like our engine isn't a junkyard engine anyway. But um, so there was that element to it. The second element was this. When we were developing this project, we were like at a crossroads at some point when we were making the engine choice. And we wanted to figure out air cooled, basically. Uh, and water-cooled engine options maybe going into the future. And one of the reasons to do the LS was basically, yeah, it's water-cooled. So we we could figure out how to plumb lines and get experience with that. Um, The second reason was we are never really going to develop our own engine. And so what powers the thing is kind of mute in many ways because – it was a test of the chassis. It was a test of like the contact patch, the suspension and like, can, can this sort of work? Um, there was also an element of, you know, when we were building like the fake history, um, the whole story was that Porsche would come to race in Can-Am as well. And in Can-Am, like everyone was running big block V8s, like didn't really matter, you know? Um, so that was part of the story and our justification for it, let's say. Um, and then, uh, gosh, and then like, you know, there's, there's a big tradition and history of prototypes running engines from other manufacturers just to test, you know, transmission, whatever, what happened. So, you know, I think a lot of people forget McLaren used Ultima chassis and, uh, small block V8s to test their powertrain, to test their transmission, to test the chassis. Yep. Um, it's just a natural like evolution. Um, and it just, you know, it happens in the development process. So for us, yeah, it's controversial. Um, but honestly sticking like an air cooled 3.6 in there would have been easy. Number one, number two, it wouldn't have given us the power that we wanted. I mean, we wanted 650 horsepower on pump gas. The only way you're doing that with a Porsche motors, you know, twin turbo. Yeah. I hate turbos, you know? So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Any power is worth that for sure. And I think people underestimate too, that just like the, how limited you are when you use Porsche engines to like Porsche parts, Porsche tuners, 
it, it really, really limits you. The LS game is, is like wide open. I'm interested in like that phenomenon of the popularity of the LS around the world versus the popularity here and, and where that comes from. I don't know if it's like, is it like an elitist stigma that people that like European cars or whatever think it's like a, like, is it like a, a class thing or I don't understand you know, I, I get like the LS swap thing. You know, I used to harp on about it because it would just be like the easiest thing because people would drag them out of a junkyard and put them yeah. in. Obviously, that's not what you're yeah. doing. But like, I never thought of it as like a, a class thing or like an elitist thing. Is that, do you think that's part of it? Or what is the reason that people feel this way? And in Europe, they don't. And you just pontificate it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, from our experience, just, you know, having conversations in Europe, it doesn't matter if the guy, you know, owns a bunch of Ferraris or he, you know, you know, just has like a, a GTI that's been chipped or something like the love for the LS is pretty universal over there, you know? And I don't know if it's like a forbidden fruit, um, same yeah. thing in the middle East and same thing in Asia. Um, all the conversations we've had, they're, they're just like, you know, you suggest them, hey, like we could do this with a Porsche engine. They're like, no, no, I want the LS. I want crazy horsepower. I think the horsepower is yeah. a big alert too, right? I mean, they're yeah. used to like small engines, little buzzy things, right? And then the LS is this, you know, it's thunder, you know, and in engine it's form. The brute. So. <laughs> it's brute. It's brutish. You know, it's yeah. it, it is like yeah. I, there might be like this romantic thing that people around the world have of like the what the American standard is, which is like mm -hmm. big loud brash and don't exactly. give a fuck right i think exactly. that's probably there's probably a little <laughs> bit of that there and you know they're yeah. they're probably they're probably not wrong so you did this road trip in the half 11 and yeah, i they... couldn't find much information about it but i did see a reel <laughs> of the half 11 driving on hogback ridge which is my i don't know if it's my favorite road but it is my most i have a very romantic attachment to that road what yeah. where did you go with this thing tell me the story of this you know road trip that you did in this car yeah, so uh, we we nicknamed that the last bad idea. Um, in many ways, that was a like a not a retirement for that car, but very much like this is this completes the bill. This completes the process. Everyone always asks like, when is it done? Well, it'll never be done. The car will always evolve and change. But this was like a good way to like cap it. Like if it can do this, we can have fun and we can create these memories. Like that's a good way to sort of end. I guess the, that project, you know, mentally and emotionally for us. Um, so it was a, it was a very dramatic trip, uh, for us and, uh, yeah, we did it with very little planning, uh, which is probably the way to do something like that. Um, the car's longest trip prior to that was 80 miles. So it was quite a leap of faith to, to take it. Yeah. 3,200 miles. Um, so you, you, you legitimately hopped in this cool. thing in LA. And you drove it 3,200 miles. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. That's insane. Like, uh, what was the, like, was there a point where you're on like Highway 50 in Nevada going, what the hell am I doing? This was a mistake. I can't, I can't hear anything. My hands are numb. Like, you regret it at any point? <laughs> that just seems, it just seems wild for a guy that loves to drive across the country in a loud car. Yeah. I can only imagine the experience of that. It was, yeah. So, I mean, it was pretty intense. So we, we did try and do a few things. So like one week before the trip, we finished the roof. That was the first time we'd had the roof on and we took it to a show here, period, correct. 
um, which is maybe, I don't know, 20 miles away. And we drove it and it was so damn hot in the car. We were just like, oh my God, how, and it was like a cool morning, right? You get up at like 6 a.m. It's cool. It's like, you know, 65 degrees outside and we're like overheating inside and we're like, this is not going to work for this trip. Um, (laughs) So contrary to our plan, we thought, okay, we put the car together. Let's, you know, let's go. We're like, okay, we have this disaster. So we pulled the entire car apart and basically started creating all these shrouds to get the radiator uh, to stop blowing hot air inside the cabin. And so we ended up creating like a, I guess three layers of protection to, to get that air out. And uh, yeah, it worked like a charm, but that wasn't part of the plan. So, I mean, everything came together last minute. The car is really loud inside, but it's actually really comfortable. Um, well, at least for me, because, you know, we built the seating position and you're kind of in this hammock. And as long as you can deal with, I mean, you can have a conversation inside, so it's not deafening. Um we also, you know, all our cars are basically straight piped. So we have a, a loose, you know, what exactly is a loud car is probably very different for, than for other people. <laughs> yeah. But yep, um, for sure. there was, I guess, the only time where it was like major, like, what the hell are we doing is we lost all four wheel bearings around Denver. Uh, they all went bad. And they're custom machine parts and we knew something was up after day one we didn't know what it was but there was like a little bit of a squeak as we like came to a stop in uh i think utah was the first day and then we're like okay let's keep an eye on it and then by the end of the second day as we were going downhill into into denver through that tunnel we were just like this is, this is catastrophic. Like this, this could end basically the trip. <laughs> like we're done. <laughs> and yeah, so that's, that's when you have regret because we'd also gotten eight people to come out with us, uh, to film, uh, to hang out, to support. Um, so we had a guy fly in from New York. We had the, the quartets and their entire family. They'd rented a car. There was like a lot at stake here if this car doesn't also make it you know you basically ruined eight people's lives <laughs> so yeah it was uh that was definitely stressful that was a stressful moment <laughs> how'd you solve the the custom wheel bearing thing like what did you have to do yeah so um we basically pulled into denver we went to an auto zone parking lot you know just neighborhood you know you can imagine I walk that. into that stupid <laughs> i can imagine this this is what yeah. happens to me. And then you can tell me what happened to you. I walk in there. I'm like, hey, I need a, I need a, this for a, for a BMW. What year is it? What year is the car? I'm like, dude, just, it's this part number. Can you just, <laughs> can we just move past the year make model thing? Because I'm putting this thing yeah. in this other thing and it doesn't tell me <laughs> what was your experience like with that car at O'Reilly's yeah. or AutoZone or whatever. Uh, very much like that. So, Basically, what ended up happening is when we pulled in there, we didn't really know it was the wheel bearings. You know, we were stopping and kind of checking and you do the wobble test and, you know, you see and nothing was really conclusive. We jacked the whole car up. We pulled the the front and, and the rear apart and still we're like checking it. It's like, no, it still doesn't really seem like it's a wheel bearing. You know, so we're scratching our heads for probably three, four hours. Like, is it the CVs? It's it's something in the steering. Like, 
because there's noise coming from everywhere and we have no idea what it is. Um, and then basically we, we decide, okay, so let's take the rear part. And then once we had released basically the hub and the CV, that's when we really saw that it was definitely the wheel bearing. Um, but basically the whole rear suspension has to come apart. Um, CVs out like big, big job. And, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere. We've got limited tools, you know, it's dark. It's 2 a.m., 3 a.m. when we finally sort it out. And uh, the rest of the guys had all gone to the to the hotel, obviously, to sleep. And my brother and I were like, okay, how are we going to get custom machine wheel bearings done so we can continue this? So we go, we go, we sleep for like three hours, wake up at 6 a.m. and just start calling every machine shop in the Denver area, <laughs> every single one. And no one will do it because of legal or liability concerns. And we're like, you yep. got to be kidding me. Yeah, what about kidding. for cash? Like not even for cash? <laughs> not for cash. You couldn't bribe them, couldn't do anything. And then uh then one guy's name kept popping up. They're like, you gotta call Marco. You gotta call Marco. And I was like, how do I call Marco? Where where is Marco? <laughs> so <laughs> turns out he basically was working at one of these fancy machine shops and then wanted to start his own. And he's 45 minutes north of Denver, middle of nowhere. So we call him and he's like, okay, yeah, sure. Like I can do this, um, bring, bring everything over and you know, we do it. So loaded, uh, half 11 into the trailer, um, towed it over there. Cause it wasn't at that point, it was basically all apart. <laughs> and, uh, it was like a scene out of breaking bad. It's just this plane of, of, of grass. There's like no homes anywhere. And he's like, yeah, you just turn right down this driveway. You go past like three abandoned RVs. There's going to be like a chain link fence. You're going to open it, unlock it, then close it back so that like the cattle doesn't get out. And, you know, we're driving down this dirt bumpy road in our trailer. um, And uh, we get there and it's just this like one shed. But he's got all these crazy machine tools in there. Um, And yeah, you know, he, he got done in like 30 minutes. It took us a lot longer to put the parts in. And, uh, yeah, super nice guy. I guess he does a lot of like aerospace machining for like SpaceX and satellites. And yeah, he, he showed us a few things and we're like, what? <laughs> yeah. It's a difference of people that have to rely on each other and people that don't want to have to rely on each other. I think, I think is, is I think is what it comes down to. I met a guy in Virginia and I, I just saw this little, it was just this little sign. I'm always looking to like, buy shit from wherever I am in these little towns. Like I want to find a thing that's not something that was made in China from somewhere. Cause a lot of these like little gift shops and stuff, they always have just trinkets and just garbage. So I'm always looking for like the spot that a guy made something wherever. And I'm in, I just left Western Virginia and I went into uh regular Virginia. Is that what you call it? You just call it regular Virginia. So I was driving down this road in, in regular Virginia and I saw the little sign that just said custom knives just like little like hung up with little ringlets below this guy's mailbox signs all super piece of shit rusty look like it'd been painted like 75 years ago and it's got this long driveway that goes up to this white house and then there's like this little like cinder block building 20 by 30 next to that and then there's like a shed behind it or whatever and i stopped the car i've got both of my kids and my wife with me i'm like normally i would just be like ah, i'm going up there let's go check this out but I, I kind of hesitated, but I said, ah, it's okay. The house looks nice. So when I pull into this driveway and this dude comes walking out and uh, he's got no teeth at all, none. And he's super weirdly <laughs> pear-shaped, 
in a very strange way. He's got gray hair, no teeth. And uh, he's like, hey, how's it going? What's up? Hey, welcome. What do you What do you want? What are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I saw your sign that says custom knives. He's like, oh, yeah, I make custom knives. And this dude is like super red. <laughs> and the thing I found is that rednecks are actually really, really nice. I don't know if that's just because I'm just a regular white dude or what, but they're always super, really, really nice. Anyway, so this guy's like, yeah, well, let's come on into my shop. Come check it out. And uh, we walk into this guy's shop, which is the Cinderblock building. And you go in there. And then all of a sudden, it's like, holy shit. It's like, there's first of all, you walk in the door. First thing you see is a gun safe that is about <laughs> eight feet tall and about four feet wide and about four feet deep. And you start looking around and you go, holy shit, this is serious. The guy's got lathes and drill presses and all this shit filling this yeah. little center block thing that you're kind of like walking through like this. Like you can't really get through <laughs> anything very good. And he's like, hey, check out this knife. And I and I go, oh, this is beautiful. And it's just, it is a truly beautiful knife the tangles all the way through it's like this special one i'm like oh what do you get for one of these he's like that one's 850 dollars. it's one of the lower end ones that i sell and i just go i'll be honest with you man i'm like a 50 dollar knife kind of guy he's like well you can't afford anything here he's but i'll show you around he ends up like opening up the safe and i'm looking in this safe and there's like this the dude the shit this guy makes are is not legal there's like suppressors like on the top shelf like like all these suppressors and shit and all these knives and he pulls out this really like this big knife it's got a huge handle on it you could put two hands on it it's probably about i don't know 20 inches tall it's got like naked ladies engraved in like the 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 hilt of it and there's he's like yeah there's there's like 50 diamonds in this thing what do you think this one's worth? I'm like, I don't know, dude. I have no idea. He's like, this is a $300,000 knife. I just finished it for a client in Dubai or whatever. I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, it looked amazing. He's like, oh, let me show you what I got in trade for another knife. So I'm like, okay. So we, like, walk out of the back of the shop, and we go around the corner to see this dude's shed. And he opens up the shed, and it's one of those, like, F-550 trucks. You know, like, the big, like the biggest F-150 thing, the, the big 550. He's like, yeah, I got this in trade for a knife. And I'm like, What? <laughs> what are you talking about? And by this time, the guy put his teeth in and everything. He actually made excuses. Like, I got to go put my teeth in. You probably can't understand what I'm saying. Anyway, it's just cool. How like these, like these dudes that just make shit. Like, it's just like the guy that makes shit in the middle of nowhere, Colorado. These dudes mm-hmm. just, he, he had like no social media presence. He didn't really have a website, but somehow yeah. this dude is like making shit for people in his little cinder block yeah. shed at like the, the topest level that is humanly possible to make what the knife yeah. and and suppressors for all his buddies or whatever it is what he's doing. It was nice. all top level. Yeah. There's your guy <laughs> custom machining you wheel bearings for your what did yeah. what did this guy think of the car, first of all? What did he say? Was he just like what? He wasn't a car guy at all. Like I think he was just kind of like and he's just like, What? You're driving this to like New York? This is terrifying like he was just scared of it and then we started it and he was just like it's too loud no no just no <laughs> but really just wasn't for him huh <laughs> yeah Gosh, not for him the, at all no the rest of the trip went pretty good then it was like smooth sailing i'm glad you had a problem dude i'm glad you had a problem because if you would have had that trip and it would have went fine i think it would have been a little anticlimactic for you i'm glad it got fucked up a little bit yeah, yeah. I mean, we had more problems with the front wheel bearings after that, um, which was its own unique thing. But um, and then the car has no gas gauge. So we ran out of fuel a number of times. And yeah, but, you know, those are all small things. Um, yeah, it's 
you know, I think like what your story is about the knife guy, it's like you never know what you'll discover unless you just go drive, right? And that's the beauty of it. Like we had no plans. We're just going to make it as far as we can today. Of course, we stopped and filmed. Um, but the idea was just let's just go discover. Let's find these cool little gems, you know? Um, and, you know, you have this preconceived notion of what like the middle of America is. Like when you live on the coasts, you know, I'm not going to like, for sure, there's there's this, like a stigma, right? And uh, we found, like our our idea of it was completely shattered. Um, we would come into these small little towns, and in Ellsworth, for example, the like the mayor, the deputy mayor, they all came out, shook hands with us. They said, "Welcome, we're so excited that you're here. Like, do you want to do a burnout down the middle of the you know downtown? Like, please fly your drone. You know, it was incredible." And that just doesn't happen, you know, in California, like people just get mad at you when you when you drive a loud car or something. So, um, yeah, it was very cool. It was very cool to discover that side of of the U.S. and, and culture and, and people, you know. Yeah, that's I mean, I love I love small town America. It's special. All the places have like a common feel, but they're all unique. Um, most people are extremely kind, extremely mm-hmm. kind. And I don't. I don't think it's the extremely kind in the coastal way where someone's trying to get something from you. If you're extremely kind, it's a genuine, I'm never going to see this person again, but I'm still going to do everything (laughs) I can to help them kind. It's really special. Yeah. I mean, totally agree. Yeah. I mean, they, dude, the little town, they bought us coffee. Like we went into the coffee store and someone had already paid for everything we were going to get. It's just insane. It's like, guys <laughs> so cool so yeah cool. It, it's great so i have one more question on half 11 and then i want to talk about design a little bit because yeah you have a really unique perspective on design um would you ever build and this, this, this is a question from one of the uh the people that are on overcrest on instagram they submitted this question okay. would you ever build an electric half 11 so interestingly enough 60 percent of the people that contact us about a car building a car want electric so to me that's that's mind-blowingly strange because the whole project and ethos of that is very much about the noise and and the thunder of racing and you know the tribute to that era um would we make an electric half a lap um only if we could do it the right way um in my design career, obviously, I don't know if most people may not know, but we, my brother and I were both OEM car designers and we've been designing effectively electric cars since 2013. I think the last combustion car I worked on would have been around 13 or 14. So basically we've been designing electric cars. We kind of know what the limitations are. There's a lot of, you know, technology that's holding it back for, what I think the enthusiast wants, which is a lightweight fan platform, right? Electric kills that. So until there are ways to do it, um, if we could do it the right way to where it wouldn't mimic a gas experience, right? You can't ask a yacht or a sailboat to mimic what a motorboat does, right? You don't buy a cigarette, you know, speedboat and then compare it to a yacht. Like those are two very different things, two very different experiences. Um, I've driven a few like converted old cars 
and to EV. Um, and what's so cool is like you can hear the leaves rustling underneath your tires. You can hear like little pebbles being, you can hear the birds chirping. So it's a very different canyon ride than it is in, you know, a loud snarling, you know, air cooled, you know, RSR or something. I think there's room for those two experiences separately, two different buyers, two different experiences. And like, they shouldn't mimic each other. You know, I think still right now, Remac, they're Lotus, they're all trying to create the combustion experience with a different technology. And to me, that's just the wrong approach, but. Are they scared? Is that, is that born out of fear of taking the leap? Yeah. I mean, with EVs in general right now, it's just huge fear. It's so much money, R and D everything. And you don't want to like upend your legacy or whatever you've built. Um, be interested to see what the next Porsche hypercar, you know, what they do, obviously they, they've teased something. Um, it would be interesting to see what that next evolution is of these, these sort of legacy brands, you know, Ferrari is obviously working on one too. So, you know, what do they do? How do they approach the problem? It'd be, you know, for me of great interest, at least. Do you know the allegory of the cave from Plato? Do you know that one? allegory of the cave are you trying to make me look dumb chris no no why are you doing this this is like uh, no no so there's like the allegory of the cave is basically you have like a bunch of people in a cave and they've never left the cave right they only know what's in the cave so they they live in the cave they they consume their entire life all the relationships are in the cave and they only know what's Mm -hmm. in the cave and then someone Mm -hmm. escapes the cave and they crawl out of the cave (laughs) and they see the whole world right and then their responsibility then is to go back into the cave and try to tell all the people in the cave why they should leave and and tell them about the experiences outside the cave. And I feel yeah. like that's what we're that's what car design is right now. I feel like everything right now we're we're all still stuck in this fucking cave and we haven't had a person leave the cave to come back in to tell everybody what's next, what we're missing out on. I feel like we're just stuck in this rut of this of this fear of we can't try anything new. People won't buy it. People still want combustion engines. We can't get over this hump. You're talking about like Lotus doing it and whatever. Yeah. This fear where we just cannot, we can't move forward. It, we can't get into this point where the cars that we're designing are the norm. Like this is, hey, this is a car. Like if we would have went back to like 1995 and talked about car design, we would just been like, these are the cars that are being designed. Every car, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm very inexperienced with, with this. You can tell me if I'm wrong with car design and design in general. But I feel like right now, we are at a point where everything is like designed for a place that we aren't like, it's like, this is the future. We're designing this. This is what the future is going to be like. Check this out. This is the new thing, but it never really feels new and fresh. It just feels like different shades of what we already had. And it just feels like we're stuck in that, in the, in this cave where nobody will, will bring us the light. No one is enlightening the automotive industry right now and, and helping push things forward. We're just spinning our wheels and we're just stuck. Yes. I mean, I, I can certainly understand the sentiment. Um, I can assure you all the brands are, are pushing like crazy and gently, um, but there is obviously a lot of resistance. Um, and part of it is just the electrification push that's been put on the brands, whether it's, you know, whether you blame the government or who you blame. Um, it's so incredibly costly. You know, when I worked at GM, I remember them you know, basically putting aside $110 billion in R&D to move to electric, right? And for, it's an insane amount of money. For what? And they're they're basically getting rid of all the cars that make the money now 
investing $110 billion for something that's completely unproven. And of course, there's risk, right? And of course, there's a, a reluctance to do anything new. And of course, you want to basically take all the engineering you've already done and piggyback that so you don't spend any money on engineering. And that's, yeah. So where we're at is basically electric cars that are, you know, hugely compromised. Um, they're not clean sheet. They're based on like, like you even have to update your factories, you know, and, and no one has that kind of money. Like nobody does, um, you know, and, and that's why in many ways, like the Chinese electric car industry is like just so far ahead at this point. It's, yeah, it's a good thing those tariffs are in place because if those cars came over here, no contest basically. Well, um, started out clean sheet, right? They're just new car companies. Yeah, so they exactly. Could, they, they yeah, yeah. To, they don't have billions of dollars of aging infrastructure that has value. Right. <laughs> I mean, these these companies, automotive companies, probably have loans out on their assets to like do stuff. Like all mm -hmm. this stuff and all the finances right. of all this is insane. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are some people that are pushing, right? Like love it or hate it. I think the Cybertruck is one of the best thing that happened to car design because it's, I don't, I'm going to get flamed for it, but it's like, I don't like the execution of it, but I like the idea of it. I like the thing that it's, it's just pushing so far past, like it just doesn't give a crap. It just doesn't care, you know? And part of it is that it doesn't care about humanity i mean i saw one on the road just it looks so cool but it's so big like i can't imagine getting into a crash with one or hitting a pedestrian with one or anything it's just not a human product but goddamn, it looks cool it looks like a ufo on the freeway amongst all the other you know bubbles i give them credit for that that's you know i would never buy one i don't like it as a as a product but god it it did it did good. So like hard someone went out of the bubble. <laughs> someone left the cave. That's like that's like that car yeah. left the cave and came back. And 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 the people are rejecting it for whatever reasons. They everybody has the reasons for not liking the Cybertruck. I, I feel like a lot of them are politically driven. Um and they're, they're very tribal. <laughs> people are very tribal with things. And because it's got right. a, a political association with it, with Elon and X and of course the green movement, all these different things. There's all these different variables that are pushing and pulling on that on that. I, like if we could take I feel like we could strip all of that away and look at the cyber truck as like an execution of exploration of where things could be. I think it's still like a concept vehicle that people are able to buy, which just seems crazy to me because you always think you always go to the auto show and you're like, wow, that thing looks really freaking interesting. And then, you know, in the back mm -hmm. of your head that you're never, ever going to get that. It's always going to be some diluted watered down like half lemonade, half piss version of what you're looking at. And yeah. uh, it, it's kind of cool to see that thing exist almost looking exactly like it did when they revealed it in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's another thing to remember, like with EVs, is how many years did it take for combustion engine to become like an enthusiast product, right? Even the V8. It took time for that to sort of evolve and, and create what we now take for granted as like performance culture or aftermarket culture or whatever. That wasn't really around at the start of the combustion engine. And so I think a lot of people get upset. Oh, EVs, they can only go fast in a straight line. Yes, right now. But give it, you know, I think we're reaching the point. It's probably been around 20 years. Mainstream electric cars have been around, sort of Tesla. 
you know, I think give it another 10 years and we'll see like a new form of electric performance and electric enthusiast cars coming to market. Um, just get, you just got to give it time. You know, it's, you can't, you can't like just expect that culture to exist. Like it, it needs to be created by a community. Um, there's so many Tesla tuners already now. It, it's coming. It's coming. So. Yeah. I'm excited for like the kind of the, I feel like these, I guess you would say clean sheet companies. I wonder if we're going to have like this coach building renaissance, right? Where someone designs and I thought it was coming. I think like, I felt like these skateboard <laughs> designs were coming where people were going to be able to buy the skateboard design and then build a car on top of it for whatever. And, and, and we would get that back in the day, like back in the twenties, right? Some dude would create like the yeah. wooden frame of the car and then, you know, here it is. It's my, whatever the fuck it is, 1928, whatever the fuck. Yeah. That and uh, now I just, I feel like that, shouldn't be too hard to do is that coming do you think <laughs> oh gosh i mean you know at the very origin of oil stain lab is that coach building thing and we are looking at ways to bring that back and figure that all out um there's just so much legal framework um these days that i i it is very difficult um I mean, in many ways, it kind of does exist. I mean, what Singer does is kind of coach building, right? They are taking an older car and they're they're swapping it or what Gunther does. A lot of these resto mod companies are playing into that because the legal framework allows for you to modify these cars without, you know, basically crazy cost. When you take into like crash testing and stuff, until there's laws and regulations that allow for small manufacturers to exist, you can't really do that. You can, of course, buy like an, a Mercedes S-Class, take everything off of it, make your own custom S-Class body. You can, yeah, you but could. you do. You can't just buy a skateboard chassis, right? And legally, that's what's kind of holding that back, sadly. You know? It's a bummer because I think that would be awesome. Like who doesn't want to build a giant RC car? Like, I agree with plastic you. Plastic yeah. on the top. It'd be so dope. It's like That's like dreams, man. If I could imagine, if you yeah. had told me when I was like 12 years old, Hey, they're going to be like electric cars someday. I would have been like RC car. I want one. I want this. I want a turbo tracks Tyco, but big. Can we do that? As a little boy, that's what I what I would have imagined. And I I hope we yeah. get there. I mean, I I don't see why not. I mean, honestly, it's just like you're allowed to ride a motorcycle in traffic. Everyone knows that if you crash or something, like there's no crash test circles. So like why not enable people to have four-wheel motorcycles basically then you can coach build just sign a waiver that says yes i know that if i crash something bad may happen to me you know i think the difference though is like a motorcycle is like you're injuring yourself whereas a car you know you're almost responsible for other people on the road at some point you know it's just a bigger object that you're throwing around yeah i disagree (laughs) (laughs) so how has the evolution of oil stain lab like um changed how you've been perceived by your clients and the people you work with have i've just like have you been you know you've worked with hyundai chevy and the corvette electrification and all this stuff when you go into meetings with this dude do they, do they talk about it has it influenced what they think of you have has there been any of the dna of what you guys have created has it kind of like seeped into anything i mean we've kind of wound down i guess the design consultancy portion of it over the last 24 months because we've been focused on kind of the new car um i think when that car comes out people will definitely look at us uh very differently um but for now that's secret so 
effectively no one's really seen that or, or knows about it um and then of course anyone who knows about our car design past you know they they haven't really changed their opinion whether half 11 prototype is finished or not finished so we're in a we're in a, a weird we've yeah we've been very quiet i will say that so it's hard like it's nothing's really changed media today it's got to be hard to stay quiet because you guys could be bringing people along for the ride you could be like hey here's our design process and people would love it they'd love to see that process and i think it would be a cool way to reveal the car but at the same time probably not the profession most professional way to do it you know but it's got to be difficult not not to share that's a tough secret to keep man yeah i think you know it's like once it evolves past my brother and i and there's other people on board and there's ndas and there's like manufacturers and partners and then it's like it's not my choice anymore you know and in many ways it's a little bit sad that it becomes you know because we started oil stain lab to escape the corporate world and as you become bigger you you start being like oh i see that's why gm did it that way like you know it like it starts to make sense a little bit um we'll probably share everything when we can the problem really with sharing it is I mean, we're very small, like tiny team, tiny budget. And what we're aiming for is, is so much. It's so like really in many ways, like unbelievable, even to us. Um, and so you don't want to over promise and then under deliver in many ways. So we'll probably share once we're a hundred percent confident that we could actually achieve what we set out to achieve 24 months ago. And you know, that, that, yeah, it, it takes what's money, it takes time, it takes people. Yeah, what's the biggest thing in your way from <laughs> feeling that way right now? It's not- uh, I mean, it always comes down to just good luck and 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 money, right? Basically, so <laughs> just we come from life, humble beginnings, and yeah, starting your own car company takes a lot of money. So yeah, I'm not gonna. Yeah, we're not we're not begging or for charity or anything, but um, you know, when you see companies it. like. Yeah, I mean, when you see a company like, for example, Gordon Murray and, you know, the countless hundreds of millions of dollars that they have at their disposal, you're just like, you get a little jealous, you know, you're just like, you know, that's what I can do. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. Well, he's earned it. <laughs> yeah, over the years, for sure. Dude, thanks for coming to hang out with me, man. It was uh, it was a good time. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I look forward to seeing you probably in April when I come out to visit for Airwater. Sing. Yeah. And isn't your, is your rally after or before? Rallies after the rally is in May. Okay. So the rally is like okay. the third week of, of May. I'm writing my essay. I'm writing my essay. You got till Friday. You got till Friday. <laughs> yeah. Then you'll be all I got it. I Actually, got it. By the time this comes out, the applications will be closed. So if you're, uh, if, if you're thinking you can go apply, it, it's too late. You procrastinated. Shame on you. <laughs> exactly. All right, dude. We'll, we'll, no, thanks we'll for having you me. again. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate it.